Amen. Thank you for that, Steve. Appreciate that prayer. And thank you, praise team. That was uh, beautiful, beautiful songs and just very reflective here this morning. So grateful for uh, the opportunity to enter in worship that way. Well, good to see you in God's house. If you're here and you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. We love you to be a part of Triad today, and I hope it's a blessing to you as we come to God's Word. I want you to take your Bibles today and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to be preaching a message today entitled, Risk-Taking Love. Risk-Taking Love. And uh, chapter 13 is the closing chapter in the book of Hebrews, and it really is all practical kind of things that ought to be the outworking of everything you learn through chapters 1 to 12. So I hope to do that today and show you some practical things. I do want to make a little bit of a disclaimer here with this message today. I got to think about this in the last message. I wish I would have done it, but... uh, I may say some personal things uh, in terms of marriage and uh, what the Scripture teaches here. This this verse, especially verse 4, is the only place it's found in Scripture. And so I'm going to probably be pretty open and straightforward about that. So if you might have a child, fifth grader down, and you might feel uncomfortable with that, um, I'd slip out in about, if you want to slip out now, slip out now, or about 15 minutes, in about 15 minutes, I'm... I might get warmed up and say things that I feel like are needed to be said here because they really enter into a lot of things that I have done in counseling over the years, and I just want to lay them out, okay? Things that maybe you've been thinking about or on your mind and heart, and so I hope to do that today. Stand with me now. We're going to read Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 4. Verse 1, let, let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by, some, by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in the prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. You may be seated. I was in the uh, store the other day and heard a song on the radio I had never heard before. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I found it a little catchy tune. And in the catchy tune, I just kind of stuck in my head. And it went, it was, it was the advice, I looked it up, it was the advice a mother was giving to her uh, daughter. And her daughter was grown now. And so here's what she said. She said, slow down, baby, you're moving too fast. Your hands are in the air, and your foot is on the gas. You're about to wreck your future, running from your past. Slow down, baby. You're moving too fast. Now, I'd never heard that song before, and I, that, I just like memorized that little tune there because I thought it was so good to think about. Slow down, baby. You're moving too fast. Now, look at the times in your life you were moving too fast. You had your hands in the air, your foot was on the gas, you're about to wreck your future, running from your past. Slow down, baby, you're moving too fast. It's a classic picture. The thing that caught me about that song, it's a classic picture of what you do when you get in a hurry. Your hands go in the air, your foot's on the gas, you take off, 
and you don't realize you could wreck your future running from your past. That stuck with me. I thought of that here today. Bad decisions, hasty decisions, deciding things too fast in your life. And then you affect the next 20 years of your life by the decisions you made that were fast or hasty or foolish in your life. If you, if you just would have waited, if you just would have settled yourself and, and got all the information and then made that decision, you probably would have come out a whole lot better, but you didn't want to do that. Your foot was on the gas and you were taken off. And you may have wrecked your future running from your past. So I walked out of that store and I thought to myself, what makes us make these fast decisions? Why do we do that? Why do we make fast decisions? And the best answer I could come up with, it wasn't in the song, but the best answer I could come up with is fear. Fear. Fear rushes you. And, and in a moment of time, you think to yourself, I'm running out of time. I've got to make a decision. I've got to move on this. I've got to go. And yet the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. <clears throat> So my theme today is practical love casts out fear. And I want to give you some practical things that will cast out fear in your life, but they're going to require some risk. They're going to require risk in four different kinds of relationships. And if you'll practice these things, I believe they'll cast out that fear. You won't make some hasty decisions. You won't make some quick and fast decisions that you have to run from your past. All right, here they are. <clears throat> I'm going to jump right in. I've outlined the message around this idea, okay? How to have a radical, non-world-like, God-like, Jesus kind of love. Kind of like that. I came up with that myself, all right? It's a little, maybe a little heavy, but I like it. Radical, non-world-like, God-like, Jesus kind of love. All right? Here's number one. Love Christians. Love Christians. Okay? You're going to have to take some risk to love Christians, all right? Verse 1 says, let the love of the brethren continue. That's the brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me give you a simple definition of love. There's a ton of them out there, but this is one of the best that I like. Love purposes another's good. Love purposes another's good. That's just a good, good simple way to think it through here as we get into this message today. So he's saying, who are you purposing other people's good in? He says, let brotherly love continue. What the writer's assuming here is they're already doing this, but he's challenging them to continue to do it. Continue to let brotherly love continue. In other words, in our church here, there is to be an atmosphere of love among us in all that we do, in the way that we treat people. We ought to treat people where we purpose their good in our lives. But it won't continue by accident. It won't, it won't just happen, okay? In other words, you have to have a willful effort to do this. I've got, I've got to continue to love brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why in the whole book of Hebrews, it reminds us of Christ's work and His love for us. And so every time you come back to that, you're reminded, you know, I really need to love like that. I really need to love based on how Christ loved me. And so it's just, it's just a thought here. Continue to seek that in your life and continue to develop that kind of love. Okay, enough said there. Number two, love strangers. Love strangers. All right, that's in verse two there. Look at that verse. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. That's an incredible verse right there. I'm going to spend a little time on this. You say, well, I'm interested in myself and the people I know. I'm only interested in my small group people. Or I'm only interested in my connect group or my Sunday school class or the groups that I run with. That's the people I run with. That's the people I'm interested in. Here's the truth, okay? We all got clicks. Okay, I got clicks, you got clicks. All of God's children got clicks. All right, that's the truth of the matter. We all, we all got clicks. There's certain people we just like to hang out with and that's, that's okay. But what he's saying here in this passage is Sometimes, if we're not careful, the other people just become faces in the crowd. They just become a face in the crowd, and we really don't do anything about that. And uh, the truth of the matter is, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, you have to step out of your clique sometimes. You have to step out of your comfort zone sometimes to take that kind of risk. And what's interesting about this in the text, according to the text, if you do this, With strangers. You do this with strangers. Uh, The Bible says, uh, I think the idea here is there's this sense of adventure. That he's going to bless you unexpectedly. Now the most extreme way would be to experience an angel unaware. But but the idea of the text is, he's going to bless you unexpectedly if you'll do this with strangers. Because it's not easy to do that with strangers. Because sometimes with strangers, we, we just feel awkward or we, you know, there's fear that overcomes us in our life and we just kind of pull back. But, but God's saying, I got an unexpected blessing for you. Now in this context, God in some way, in some method, plants angelic beings in our midst to see how we're going to treat strangers. That's an amazing thing right there. That's That's incredible shocking to me. I was looking at this. Entertain. See that word entertain or that word hospitality, hospitable? That just means in the Greek, love for strangers. You have a love for strangers. That's a beautiful thing to have. A love for strangers. Like in our church, visitors, would you ever go up to a visitor and say, hello, I don't, I don't believe we met. My name is. See, that's just, there's an unexpected blessing God will put in that. It may not be an angel unaware. It may not be an angel that you're entertaining or giving hospitality to. But God says, I'm going to give you an unexpected blessing with that. In some cases, it's an angel, which is absolutely amazing to me that God does that. As a matter of fact, I believe right now in this worship service, there are angelic beings around us. You say, well, how do you know that? And just write this in your notes as you're going along. 1 Corinthians 11.10 says that when you come to the worship services... The angels have the desire to look into these things, and because of the angels, they watch how we dress and how we act. That's an incredible thought. Incredible thought. God's interested in knowing that, and that's why he sends some angels to do that. Now, I don't want to take a lot of time with that one, but Abraham entertained angels. Lot entertained angels, and they were blessed unexpectedly. As a matter of fact, it kept from Lot from being destroyed. So there's unexpected blessings in loving the stranger. Now, I don't doubt in any way, I don't doubt this, that angels are around us. Now, what I want to caution you against here is have a balance on this thing, okay? Don't get into an angel craze, seeking angels, all right? That's a mistake in Scripture. 
People who talk about angels all the time, seeing angels all the time. Listen, I'd be suspect of that in the context of the fact that when you study the Word of God, the Christian life should be a hundred times more oriented around Jesus Christ. There's two verses in Hebrews and only a few in the whole New Testament on angels. And so so you just want to keep that in balance. There's nothing wrong with uh, talking about angels, but in relationship to Christ, a hundred more times you should be focused on Christ. But consider this now, okay? Let's consider this for a moment. In our daily lives, while rubbing shoulders with the community, you may have an angelic encounter that you know nothing about. It's awesome. It's one of the things God hides in the world for us. And in having this, they're like, uh, the best way I know how to describe it, it's like an undercover boss in the story, and he's checking out how you, the employer, are acting. And then the undercover boss, if you're acting well, he rewards you for that. That's the idea here. It's kind of like the secret shopper coming into the store and you don't know that it's an angel. All right? God has secret undercover undercover cherub operations to see how we treat other people, especially strangers. This is incredible. How do you treat strangers? Now, Have an honest examination of your heart, okay? How do we love people outside of our group? Outside of our group, outside of our church. You open up your home. Would you open up your home to a stranger? Think about that for a minute. When Lydia, the seller of purple in Philippians 16, when she was down by the riverside, Paul came down and started to teach a lesson to these women. And when she was teaching the lesson, the Bible says that Lydia opened her heart to the Lord. She opened her heart to the Lord. And you know what the next thing she did? She opened up her home to Paul. Said, come on in, you need something to eat. You may need a lodging. Come on in. And so, here's the pattern of Scripture. She... Lydia's heart was opened, and then her home was opened. That'll follow in your life. If you have an open heart, you'll have an open home. And even to strangers, and that's that's the idea of the text here, that, that, that if you open up one thing, there'll be a result that will open up something else. And that's that's a beautiful thing. I can honestly say, just from my life, I've outdone all of you with the people I've had in my home. I've had over 2,000 people in my home since I've been the pastor here. If you went through our first step class and you wanted to come over to the house for a social, you were welcome to come. I didn't know you that well, but I opened up my home. My wife opened up her home in hospitality to strangers that were coming into our church to join. And many of you now are no longer strangers. Your friends, your, your people, and brothers and sisters in Christ that I've come to know. But at that time, I opened up my home. And we've been an example to you as pastor and my wife to invite strangers into our home. I'm telling you, as leaders of this church, if you're a leader of this church or you're in this church, you ought to open up your home. Open heart, open home. Open to the Lord, open home. You say, well, I'd have to clean up. Yeah, you would. But are you going to purpose another's good? All right? Are you going to purpose their good and say, hey, my heart is open and my home is open? Not to people you know, but to strangers. And you've got to think that through and be wise about it because there is a certain amount of risk with that. And, And I want you to understand that, okay? It always carries risk. Because when we, when we do this as a couple, or I do it 
on my own. I've got to make sure I'm doing that person good and not harm. Now, I'm going to speak very blunt to you today and very practical, but I just want you to hear this. Sometimes giving a person what they ask for doesn't help them at all. Okay, and so you've got to be wise about that. I can't have someone in my home and support them in a destructive lifestyle. Now, you're going to have to think that through because some of you are in difficult situations. You cannot have someone in your home and support them in a destructive lifestyle. That, that has to be thought through. You're not helping them or loving them by giving them a place to stay. I, I think of a grandmother in this church, I told this on Wednesday night, who um, her granddaughter came to visit with her boyfriend. And the grandmother had her room, and then on the one side she had her granddaughter, and on the other side she had the boyfriend. And when they came in, got settled, the granddaughter said to grandma, that's all right, we're living together so we can sleep together. Grandma looked at her granddaughter and said, not my house. She said, I'm not going to allow that. He's going to sleep here, you're going to sleep here, and I'm right in the middle. You got it right, Grandma. You got it right. And I'm just saying to you that you've got to think this through. And I know some of you are in difficult situations, but you've got to think through how to do it. Now, here's something else I want you to think about. Some people look for handouts and they beg. I've run into them many times, as many of you have as well, in Winston and Greensboro. Now, I try to be a giving person, okay? Do I always give? No, sometimes I go right past the person. Other times I stop and I have given them money. And, and I always try to think, if I give them money, here's what I ask myself, will it help them or will it hurt them? And so I've, I've, I've talked to different pastors about this. What do you do in those situations? And, and, and just got some good advice. And, uh, uh, but I want to know. I want to know I'm helping them and not hurting them. So here's what I've started to do. I've done this in the last two years, uh, especially when I'm alone. I, I don't like to, I don't want anybody to feel like, oh, look what he's doing, you know. So I've done this alone. I'll pull, I'll pull out my wallet. And I'll either have a few dollars or a five. That's about as high as I go, five bucks, okay? And so I have a few dollars or a five, and I'll, I'll get ready to hand it to him, and I'll say, now, here, I'm going to give you this, but I want, you got to let me pray with you first. You say, okay, sure, go ahead. Go ahead, brother. <laughs> you know, and so I'll say, I'll say a prayer like this. Lord, if this is a good person, and they're going to use this money for good? Bless them, Lord. And Lord, I pray that all the more would come to them because they use this money for good. Bless them. But Lord, if this is not a good person, and they're going to use this for drugs, or they're going to use this for alcohol, or they're going to use this for something bad, then Lord, curse them. And I pray they don't get money for a long, long time. <laughs> I have prayed that prayer. I had that money in my hand. I finish and I say amen. And I'll look at the people. Do you want this money still? I'll tell you this. 99% of people, yes, I do. I want that money. Now, one time I prayed that prayer. When I opened my eyes, the guy was gone. <laughs> now, I can tell you, I wasn't entertaining an angel on that one. <laughs> I mean, he was a guilty conscience. That's the only thing I could see there. But he was gone before I finished that prayer. I love that. But anyways, uh, I, I just pray that. God will answer that prayer. Bless them or curse them, Lord. What are they going to do with the money? 
It makes them think. I'm not trying to make them feel guilty. I'm trying to help somebody, all right? It's not a guilt thing. Okay, that's a great prayer. Bless them or curse them, all right? Do you know people here in this service right now were homeless at one time on the streets and didn't have a place to go? Members in our church who were homeless. Now, you don't know that because they probably haven't told you that. But maybe someone has who've been homeless. And now today, they're in our church, they're a husband, they got a wife, and they're serving the Lord. And they were homeless at one time, walking the streets, living off what they could. And do you say, do you know the number one thing that they most remember about being on the streets is the people who helped them? The people who helped them. They loved a stranger. And that's what brought them to a place that they knew someone cared. That's so powerful. So remember that, okay? Let's go on. That's loving strangers, all right? Number three, love the hurting. Love the hurting. Now in this context, it says in verse three, remember the ones in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Now, this wouldn't fit in our context today, but those people who were Jewish Christians that became followers of Jesus Christ left Judaism, and when they did, they went under persecution. And some of them ended up in prison for their faith. And so what he meant by remembering them is go and see them. And there's a passage back in Hebrews chapter 10 where they went and visited them in prison and they took the risk of identifying with them. And so that's really what this is talking about. People who identified with other Christians who are being thrown in prison. All right, so that's kind of the context. Now, we don't really have a situation like that today, but I guess a couple ways I could apply it is uh, to you who work in prisons. Some of you work in prisons. I think it's a great thing to do a jail ministry, I think this could be part of the application. You've loved them, you've evangelized them, you've counseled them, and you've helped them behind bars. There's a reward for that. And I would encourage it. I've done it myself. But the deeper focus, I think, in the passage is really brothers or sisters in prison for the sake of the gospel. I think that's really the context. And the only ones I could think there, then, are people that we support and have ministries that are doing work like this, like Samuel Thomas with Hope Givers in northern India with the persecution that they go through. One day he had a, a pastor and his wife be abducted, and they were going to rape the woman, and uh, they took her, and uh, when they took her away, he started texting me. Uh, did he text you on that, Jason? Okay, he started texting us. Remember, we had this running text of what was going on every, like, every half hour to an hour. Uh, the police were coming, all these different things that were going on. It was like, I felt like I was in like this film watching it from a text. And it was an amazing thing. But that's the kind of thing you want to remember, that there are people uh, being kidnapped for their faith. There are people that are being raped for their faith. There are people that are going through these things. There are people that are languishing in prison right now. now you can't reach them all. But maybe you could reach one. Okay, Art Williams has a, 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 a fellow I've been praying for. I can't say his name well, so I have to always look at it. Naja Swara Rao. He's in New Delhi. He's in a prison for his faith in Christ, and he has been put behind bars because of that. I pray for him on a regular basis. And I, I, Is there something I can do, Art, to help him out in that situation? I can't do everybody, but I can do somebody, and that's all I'm saying to you on that, okay? Enough on that. Love the hurting 
in prison, okay? And let me go to the fourth one. This is where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time. Love your mate. Love your mate. This is an unusual verse, and that's why I want to take some time with it. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, you may not be married here, okay? And even if you're not married, you, you say, well, I feel a little excluded every time you talk about marriage. Listen, you can be single, and what I'm about to say, okay, can be very, very helpful to you. I promise you that. And I'm going to speak to the culture, and so I just want you to hear everything I want to say. So please stay tuned with me, okay? Marriage is honorable. The word honor there is a great word in the Greek. It's only used a few times in the Bible. It's the word precious. It's, honor is used a bunch, but this is the specific word for precious. Marriage is precious. All right? It, it's used in a couple contexts that are good. When go, precious gold, precious silver, it's used for those two words. And then one other time it's used here for precious is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So the precious blood of Christ is being compared to the preciousness of marriage. So as you read this verse, you're, you're to see the ring of preciousness in it. It's precious. Respect it, value it, be gripped by it with emotion. Why? Because in society, it's becoming less and less true. It's less and less true about marriage. I, I want to do this. Uh, number one, it is dishonored today by living together. You dishonor marriage by living together. There's no covenant. There's no commitment. Uh, you live as if you're husband and wife, kind of, sort of, but, but, there's not, but you're not married. There's no covenant. I can leave if I want. I have no real commitment to you. And, and it messes up the whole concept of what it means to be married. Let me give you a good definition of marriage. This comes from uh, Wayne Grudem's work on biblical manhood and womanhood. And I want you to see it because this is, this is really for you to understand this. Marriage is created and defined by a sexual covenantal union of a man and a woman in lifelong allegiance with the view of displaying Christ's commitment and relationship to his blood-bought bride, his church. That's the best definition I've seen on marriage. Marriage. A union of a man and a woman in lifelong allegiance to each other with the view of displaying Christ's commitment and relationship to his blood-bought bride, his church. Let me go further with that. It's a great mystery, and you can't do that living together. You can't picture Christ and his church by living together. God made this is God made a male and a female, and he gave the male masculine characteristics, he gave the woman feminine characteristics. And the reason he did that whole thing was to draw two together as one so he could picture the church. That's the reason there's women, and that's the reason there's men. And that's the reason there's masculinity and femininity. Because God wanted to have a way for you to understand how much he loved the church and the union between those two. That is incredible to me. Just think about that for a minute, okay? So a male displays sacrificial love and leadership in his marriage, and a female displays submissive role of Christ's body as the bride, which displays the most profound reality in the universe. Christ in you, and you in Christ. That's the whole reason he created marriage. It's the whole reason there's femininity, and the whole reason there's masculinity. is so that you would understand the deeper picture of displaying the beauty 
of Christ in you and you in Christ. That's it. That's everything. That's, that's absolutely incredible to me to think about it at that level. I'll say a little more in just a minute. Okay, another way it's dishonored today in marriage is by, is by neglect. It's by neglect. People neglect each other in the relationship. They become like sexual roommates. And, and they stop really sharing their life together. And, and they have no investment one into the other. And so it's, it's dishonored by neglect. Okay, for the sake of time, I'm going to keep moving. Number three, marriage is dishonored by the redefinition in culture. The redefinition in culture. Let me just make this clear to you. So, and give me a chance to just say all this, and then you, you give me your thoughts after if you want to. I'll be happy to hear them, but let me just say it this way. There is no such thing as same-sex marriage. There's no such thing as it. I'm telling you, it's part of a broken sexuality in our culture caused by sin. I'll say it again. It's part of a broken sexuality caused by sin. Same-sex marriage doesn't exist. I don't care what terms they use. It can exist, even if you call it that. Because they cannot picture Christ in the church. God defined it. He said it is the joining of two separate distinct persons, male and female, which pictures Christ and the church. Now, for me to say that in this culture, that's hate speech. That's hate speech. I, I hate people if I say that. I'm, I'm telling you right here, it's not hateful. It's not at all hateful. See, what hate wants is, hate doesn't want people saved. That's what hate wants. What hate wants is hate wants to destroy. And so when the Bible speaks to these things very, very clearly, 1 Corinthians 6 let me, let me just read the list to you. He says, these people will not get into heaven. Don't be deceived. Fornicators. Idolaters. Adulterers. Effeminate. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a word back from the first century. Effeminate means a, a perversion of your gender. Effeminate perversion of your gender. Because that trump cup. Uh, cover all kinds of things, the transgender issues all the way to homosexuality. So it's a broad range of where you step out of your gender and play a different role. And, and so he's talking about that. He's saying, um, uh, then it says, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying, you say, well, you know, I've done one of those things. It, it honestly doesn't matter if you've done one of those things. Are you practicing it right now? That's the key. Are you practicing it right now? You continue to go in it and you practice it. See, that's, that's, that's how you have to understand that pa passage. So, uh, I'll say just a more in just a moment, but let me make sure I, I got the thoughts I want to get. If you practice those things, it keeps you out of heaven. It keeps you out of heaven. Then isn't the most loving thing I could do to anyone, to talk to anyone about this, is to warn them. Is to warn them. To plead with them. Love is going to do all it can. Love is going to do all it can to see people live forever. And I don't want you to go to hell. So, it is... 
It is so important you see that in regards to same-sex marriage and understand it in that context. Now, the good news is, the good news is that God says heterosexual sinners and homosexual sinners who trust God, He cleanses them, He justifies them, and He sanctifies them. He doesn't kick them out. If they repent of that and they come to Christ, whatever kind of sinner they are, he enfolds them into the family. He brings them in to the family. The church is full of former drunkards. The church is full of adulterers. The church is full of thieves and homosexuals. And I believe my role is to point them to Christ. Your role is to point them to Christ. That's why I don't get into trying to change the policies and the laws. I'm going to support Christian candidates for sure. But you're not going to see me running for politics. It's, it's, it's not because I'm against politics. I just ultimately know that's not going to change a life. You can legislate the morality all day long, but it doesn't change a heart. That's why I want to point them to Christ. I think that's the only way to change hearts. All right, now, will we have a better society if we legislate it? Yeah, we'll probably have a better society, but we will still have the problem of an unchanged heart. Now, will I support someone like Mark Walker or other politicians? Absolutely. All right, but that's not where I'm going to put my emphasis, and most of my time is going to be pointing people to Christ. All right, let's go on here, okay? That's, that's the first thought there, marriage is honorable. The second thought is marriage, the marriage bed is undefiled. Now, this is the hard one. There's a lot of things I could do with this, and I've got to move on. Okay, marriage bed is undefiled. The word undefiled there means unstained, pure, clean. Okay? It's a diplomatic way of referring to sexual relations in marriage. That's the only place it is in the Bible. The dipl diplomatic way to say sexual relations in marriage. So let me make sense of that, okay? In other words, sex is the glue Sex is the glue that holds the marriage bond together. The covenant was made, but sex is the glue that bonds the covenant one to the other. And that reflects Christ and His church. In other words, the reflection of Christ and His church, this is what gives sex its meaning. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but this gives sex its meaning. The world uses sex for just pleasure, but they lose its meaning. The world aches in the meaninglessness of empty pursuits. But when I give myself to my wife and my wife gives herself to me, there is a oneness, a union, a glue that comes together with us. And in that union, it reflects at a deeper level Christ and the church, his bride. It's beautiful. In other words, when I give myself to my wife and my wife gives herself to me, what it really does for me, it kicks some things around in my head that God, you're wanting to do something deeper in me than just physical with my wife. You're wanting me to understand how to go deeper with you and you to go deeper with me. Yes, Rob, I want you to understand how much I love you and how deep I want to go with you and how deep you can go with me. That's, that's really at the core what's underneath it all. The physical is just a picture 
of, of the spiritual reality of what God's driving at with you. Okay, I want to hit a few things that I've heard over the years, especially with college kids, because I've worked a lot with college kids, so I'm going to just say a few of these things. Sometimes people bring up specific sexual behaviors and ask, are they permitted between the husband and the wife? In other words, they mean by that, does anything go in the marriage bed because it's undefiled? Here's what I want to answer that, because I think that's a very good question. God allows great freedom and variety of sexual experience in the marriage. Everything must be done with the concern for the needs of the other spouse. Perverted sex or perversion sex is not loving. It's selfish. It's selfish. And never, never violate the conscience of your mate. Never ask her to do something that she doesn't feel comfortable with. Never. She has the right to say no. Biblically, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 4, defraud ye not one another, except it be through prayer. But in essence, what it's saying is, don't violate the conscience of your mate. Everything you do in the bed must be done in love. Now, what Satan's strategy is this, is does, he does everything he can to encourage sex outside of the undefiled marriage bed. Of course, that's in his interest to encourage that. And then I want you to hear this, flip side, the flip side. The flip side is he wants to do everything he can to discourage normal sexual expression inside the undefiled marriage bed. So if he can't get you to go outside of the marriage bed, then the next thing he's going to go after is to try to pervert it inside the undefiled marriage bed. See, those are his two strategies, the two-fold strategy of Satan. There it is, undefiled. So let me just define that. Don't sin in your sexual relations don't sin or don't displease God in your sexual relations. So that leads to these kind of questions. Like this. The guilt of your past does not need to be carried into your marriage. Maybe you had a sinful sexual past. And here's what, here's what I want to teach you, okay? If you genuinely threw yourself at the mercy of God for forgiveness... You legitimately threw yourself at the mercy of God for forgiveness. He will free you from that guilt. Romans 8.1, 1 John 1.9. It takes a solid faith, but you lay hold of your forgiveness and you take it with you to the marriage bed. Christ died for that sin that you might have guilt-free sexual relations in marriage. I need to go a little further there, okay, because I've dealt with a lot of college kids here on this one. Even though the guilt of sin is washed away, some scars remain. Imagine an engaged couple in college. He turns to her and says, there's something I've got to tell you before we get married. Two years ago, I had sex with a girl. I was away from the Lord. It was a three-night ordeal. I've wept over it many times. I believe God has forgiven me. I hope you can before we're married. In the weeks that follow, with many tears, she forgives him and they marry. On the first honeymoon night, they lie together and she begins to cry. I just can't help but think of that other girl and she laid right where I am. After years of marriage, novelty of her body wears off. He finds himself drifting back in his imagination to the thrill of those three nights with that other girl. 
That's what I mean by scars. That's scars. Doesn't mean you're forgiven. Doesn't mean you can't have a guilt-free relationship. But there's scars. All of us have scars. Maybe they're not all sexual. But our scars make our present life more problematic than if we hadn't experienced them. Now, I want to just say this to you, okay, if you're in that boat. Christ is not powerless against such scars. He may not remove them. He may not remove them from the marriage, okay, that they've caused. But I tell you this on the authority of God's words. He promised to work, he promised to works, to work even our problems for our good. He says he takes all things, all things. And he works them together for good. And you have to believe that in your situation. That he can take something horrible like that. And he can turn it around and make it something good. Now you, I know you're sitting there thinking, there's no way. That's because you don't believe that verse. And he says, if you love him and you're called according to his purpose, he'll take it and he'll use it for good in your life. That's absolutely beautiful. Almost beyond faith to get that comprehension and to believe that in your life. But I needed to say that to you because I have faced this, okay? Um, I would say this then. You have to work through together openly and in prayer. You can't keep things bottled up. You've got to come to trust each other and find a way to peace and sexual harmony. If you give yourself with joy to the other and give satisfaction to them, a hundred problems are solved in your marriage. Okay, let me say this husband and wife, and I'm going to close, okay? If your joy is to bring, the husbands, if your joy is to bring her satisfaction, you will be sensitive to what she needs and wants. You know that it doesn't begin at 10 p.m. at night. It begins with tender words at 7 a.m. And continues through the day with kindness and respect. And then when it becomes 10 p.m. at night, you will not come in like a Sherman tank. But the truth is, you will know her pace and you will bring her skillfully along. And you'll find out, you'll find out it's more blessed to give than to receive. Wives, it's not always the case, but often your husband wants sex more than you do. Now, I wanted to get some advice from this guy, from a really good guy, Martin Luther. And he was writing about how, what is the least amount of sex you should have in a week? I've not found another theologian to write on this, so that's why I'm quoting him. Martin Luther found that twice a week was ample protection from Satan the tempter. Now, I don't know how his wife Katie felt about that. Her name was Catherine, but he called her Katie. Let me show you a picture of her. Little homely, isn't she? <laughs> you can't believe the things he said about his wife. And if he can say them about her, let me tell you something, you've got a great wife. <laughs> Listen to what he said. He said so many things. He said, there's nothing more lovely and a charming relationship and communion and good company than with my marriage and Katie. I thought, man, if that guy can say that about her, you guys can make it. 
for sure, all right? Why am I saying that to you, okay? I don't know how his wife Katie, if she was up for it every time or not, okay? That's what I'm saying. But here's my advice. If you're not, give it anyways. I know what you're thinking. You're a man. You'd say that. But the truth of the matter is, I really am trying to help your marriage. Let me be clear. I did not say to you husbands, take it anyway. In fact, for her sake, you may go without. The goal is to outdo one another in giving what the other wants. And I would say to you, make it your aim to satisfy each other as fully as possible. I want to tell you something. I didn't get excited in this message, but I am worn out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for its truth. And Lord, I just reflect right now on each of our hearts. There's someone here that carry guilt. Some carry shame. Some struggle. Some can't communicate. Some can't be open. They're all bottled up. Lord, my prayer is you'd help these marriages, all of ours. We all need it. I know there's been time of neglect in my own, my own home. But Father, I pray your spirit would move over us. Your word is powerful to speak. There's some things in life that are unstained, pure, precious, right down to our sexual relationships. So I pray it would draw us into a deeper understanding that is far beyond the physical. Let us understand how deep you want to go with us. And for us to long for that with you. In the way that you love your bride. I commit this time now. I pray your blessing over each of these homes. These marriages. The struggles they don't talk about. I lift them up to you. And I believe you'll take every one of them. And you can take all the bad. You can turn it to good. I ask you to do that. That we'd have a greater understanding of your love for us. I commit it to you now. This time as we've gathered together. In Jesus' name.